Well, you can keep your Bibles open right there in the book of the Psalms, uh, the psalm that we read from for both of our scripture readings today was Psalm 106. And now for the sermon this morning, we're going to be looking together at the psalm right after it, Psalm 107, which you might see at the top of 107, it says book five. So there are actually five books within the one book of Psalms. And we read the last psalm of the fourth book, and today we'll be in the first psalm of the, of the fifth and final book of the psalms. Now, a week ago, I mentioned that since I was preaching before and after Thanksgiving, I decided this year to take two weeks to focus in on the theme of thankfulness. And I hope our study last Sunday was as helpful for you as it was for me as, as we went through Thanksgiving week as we really focused in last week on thankfulness and food. And today I want to return to the theme of thankfulness, but this time I want to focus in on just one specific psalm, Psalm 107, and what it has to say about thankfulness. And if you're not familiar with this psalm yet, I think you're going to quickly learn to love this psalm. Though Psalm 107 is a little bit long, 43 verses, it is very easy to follow. It has a lot of repetition in the psalm, and the main messages of the psalm are really, really clear and easy to find. They're in the first two verses of Psalm 107. You can look at those. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Those are the twin emphases of this of, the, of this psalm. Give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love and let others know that God has rescued you or what God has done for you. Now, as we get into the psalm, I want to begin by looking first at two connections between the psalm we read, Psalm 106, and, and this psalm. Now, you might have noticed the, the first connecting point would be the first verse. Did you notice the first verse of Psalm 106 and the first verse I just read of 107. Take a look at those. So 106, which is the end of book four, starts out, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And then you see 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And remember, you got these five different books. And so the, the fourth book ends with this call to give thanks to the Lord for these things. And then book five begins with the very same call to give thanks to the Lord. Okay, that that connection is pretty easy to see. But there's one more I want to note as well. And there's actually a lot more than this. But there's one more I want to note. And for this, you have to go back just a couple verses to the end of Psalm 106. Okay, so look at Psalm 106 and look at verse 47. So do you remember this? It was just read for us. 106, 47. It's this cry. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations so that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Okay, now perhaps you remember that a lot of Psalm 106 
is about how bad things went for Israel throughout their history because they kept doing such bad stuff. But then at the end of the psalm, the psalmist cries out for the people, for himself, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. Now, if you think about that, okay, if the cry is gather us from among the nations, then that would mean that the people by this time must have apparently been scattered among the nations in judgment. So, so when do you think that psalm is taking place? Like originally, if the call is gather us back from among the nations, Psalm 106, the end of book four, would seem to be like from the lifetime of someone like Jeremiah, where the people were finally sent into exile for all the terrible things they had been doing since they came out of Egypt hundreds of years earlier. But the psalmist cries out at the end, Lord, save us again and, and gather us back from among all these nations so that we can give thanks to your holy name. Now keep that in mind, and then look at Psalm 107, verses 2 and 3. Okay, so look at Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and whom he has gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. You see the difference. This is the second connecting point I wanted to see between the two psalms. That the request at the end of book four, Psalm 106, is seemingly answered by the time you read the beginning of book five, Psalm 107. You see, the end of 106, it's the cry, save us and gather us back again. And then 107, it's a call let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed and gathered again. So one of the key things this tells us is that Psalm 107, the one we're going to look at today, is probably originally about what happened after Jeremiah's day, after the exile, when God began to gather his people again in response to the cries of his faithful people. In spite of all their sinning and rebelling and running, God maintained his loyal love even throughout the years of the exile. And just like he promised, after the exile, God began to redeem and gather his people again. And, what, and then when you think about that, okay, when people have experienced that kind of love and deliverance, what should those people do? That's the twin emphasis of the psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Okay? Now, let's start walking through the psalm and see, see how it develops. Okay, so we've, we've looked at the first three verses just a little bit, but we'll read those, and then you'll get into the different scenes in the psalm. So Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, 
and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now to the first scene in the psalm, verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Now, what do you picture there? And what do you think the psalmist is trying to picture? The idea of wandering in the desert could certainly remind us of Israel's experience in the wilderness uh, back in the first books of the Bible. But this could also describe what exile would have been like to be wandering around with nowhere to call home. Hungry and thirsty, your soul fainting. Okay? But, but I don't think we should get too focused on just one scenario as if only one kind of person could connect to the psalm. These psalms, though they came out of a situation, are intended to be sung and to be internalized by us and to be believed and, and picked up and used. But the bottom line is that here you have people in real desperation, hungry, thirsty, their souls fainting. But then verse 6, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, and he led them by a straight way until they reached a city to dwell in. And when God delivers people from their desperation, what should those people do? Verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, because God satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Now, I wonder, have, have you ever experienced something like that before? Have you ever been hungry and thirsty or weary in your soul and cried out to the Lord from that distress and actually had God answer you? If you can relate to that, where maybe your soul was wasting away and you felt like there was no hope and then you cried out to the Lord in that affliction and God heard you, what should you do? Thank the Lord for his loyal love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. That's the end of the first scene. Now look at the second one. This starts in verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. <clears throat> so he, God, bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help them. 
So the first scene is more of a picture of someone wandering in the desert. But this picture is more of being what? It's more of being a prisoner in chains who's been sentenced to hard labor. Now again, this could describe the exile experience. But this could describe a lot of other times too, like in the book of Judges, which Phil has been preaching through. But the difference between this scene and the one before it, I think primarily, is that we are told exactly why this one happened. Did you notice? This sad situation is specifically because the people rebelled against the Lord. It is a direct result of sin. Sin has led to the slavery, the imprisonment, and this is directly God's judgment for their sin. But then look at verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and out of the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. You see, in the first scene, we're not told exactly why things are, are going so badly. In the second one, we're told exactly why. This is the direct result of the people's rebellion. But in both cases, what do the people do in their desperation? Then they cried out to the Lord from their troubles. And in both cases, what did God do? He delivered them from their distress. And I love how the psalmist adds the lines. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst the chains apart. God is a God who can break people's bondage, who can free them in this text, even from the consequences of their own rebellion against him. I wonder, have you ever seen God do something like that for you? Have you ever felt the weight of your own sin? And have you ever began to taste the consequences of your sin? And have you ever cried out to God from the middle of trouble that you caused and still seen God deliver you anyway. When God delivers someone, even from their own self-made problems, what should those people do? Let them, look at verse 15, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. That's the end of the second scene. Now to the third, verse 17. <clears throat> Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. And they drew near to the gates of death. And now what is that a picture of? 
Again, you'll notice this, this is a result of sin as well, clearly. But what has sin led to this time? It's led to affliction, and it has led to despair, to not even wanting to eat food. And so it's actually led all the way to the brink of death. Now, perhaps this is a picture of those who are sick, physically sick, but perhaps even more, this is a picture of those who have become sick in their hearts, depressed, hopeless, not even wanting food, about to die. But when it seems like all hope has been lost, then what? Verse 19. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Even when death's gates have drawn near, even when a person has lost almost the will to live, even then, it's not too late. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them. While you still have breath, you still have hope, because you can use that breath to cry to the Lord. And God is a God who can deliver you, even from the pit of despair, even from the throes of depression, even from the very gates of death. I wonder, have you ever seen God do something like that for you? Where you haven't even wanted to eat because you're so overwhelmed with sadness and grief and sorrow, you feel like you're about to die. And then with the little strength you had, you just cried out to the Lord. Have you ever seen God answer you from that? If you have, then what should you do? Verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. There again are the twin emphases of the psalm. Give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love and let somebody know what God has done for you. That's the end of the third scene. Now on to the fourth, which is the final one, like this in the psalm. Verse 23. <clears throat> Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. 
They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Now, this scene is interesting in that the people of Israel were not typically known for being out on boats uh, doing business on the great waters. Like, how many sea stories can you think of in the Old Testament where people are actually on boats? Like, they walk through a couple seas, but this is not a very common experience. I'm sure there would be some who could connect with this more directly, but most people would be like us, imagining the scene. But this scene also stands out because the danger in it seemingly has nothing to do with the sins of any of the people in the, in the boat. The storm is completely out of their control. And notice that in, the, in this story, these people that are out there on the sea have been out there before. They have seen the works of God out on the deep. But they've never seen anything like this before. They've never seen a storm like this one. And the storm, you'll notice, comes directly from the hand of God. Because if you look at verse 25 again, it says, For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. And then before you know it, we're being taken up with the sailors on the boat by the surging waves, waves that are mounting up to heaven. And then we're coming crashing down to the depths. And where does all of the courage of the people go who are on the boat? It just melts away. Can you picture the guys on the boat reeling and staggering like drunken men who've come to their wit's end? Now, interesting to me, this psalm is written hundreds of years before Jesus' earthly ministry, but it it might as well have been written about Jesus' disciples out on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if you can remember that story from the Gospel of Mark, but the disciples are out there fearing for their lives because of a huge, unstoppable storm. And where's Jesus in that story? He's down in the, in the stern, and he's sleeping with his head on a pillow. But then, when those guys who had been out on the sea a lot, because a lot of them were fishermen, when they realized there was absolutely nothing left for them to do, what did they do? They did the same thing these guys did in this psalm. Look at verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. It gives you something to think about when you read the story in Mark 4, which follows the same trajectory, where Jesus gets up, says two words, and stills the raging sea. Maybe it shows you something about Jesus and the Lord of this storm in the psalm. But my question again is, have you ever seen 
God do anything like that for you? Now, of course, I doubt many, if, if any of us, have seen anything like this out on the sea. But on the same note, I doubt that very many people who have ever sung this song actually witnessed something like that out on the sea. But we can all imagine it, can't we? And not just that, I would think many of us can relate specifically to the idea of being at our wit's end. Have you ever been in such an overwhelming situation that you really had no idea what to do? And have you ever cried to the Lord from that trouble and seen God deliver you? If that's happened to you, what do you think the psalmist would tell you to do? Verse 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. There again, the twin emphases. Give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love and let somebody know what God has done for you. Now, until this week, I would say that I, I've liked this psalm, but those, that was the only part of the psalm that I knew, those four scenes. But it turns out there's a concluding part to this psalm as well. It kind of breaks the pattern because it's not a story like the others. It's more of a last word of wisdom from the psalmist to anyone who would read the psalm and read those stories. So I want to... I want to read that the psalmist ends by saying, I want you to pay attention to God's loyal love and to how God can change things. And he looks back at the four stories and says, have you seen how God can change things for good or for bad? You better pay attention. This is what he says. So let's read, let's read his closing remarks. Verse 33 and 34. The psalmist says, God turns rivers into a desert. God turns springs of water into thirsty ground. A fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. See, that is a warning that God can change things for bad. If we turn from him, this psalm showed us that, if you go back and think of the stories. Israel's history shows us that, and our own experience shows us that too. But look at what else God can do. Verse 35 and following. God turns a desert into pools of water. A parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly. He does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, like when, when God's blessed people start to be brought low by maybe others who are oppressing them, 
Verse 40, God pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But God raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things, and let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. God can change things. If you're experiencing God's blessings, don't take them for granted. Don't turn from him. There is a warning that God can change things. But if you're experiencing oppression or evil or sorrow or affliction, God can change those things too. God has the power to bring powerful people low, and God has the heart to bring lowly people out of their distress. There is both a warning and a word of hope no matter what our circumstances may be. And the psalmist ends by saying, whoever's wise, let them take heed to these things and consider how God works in his steadfast love. Now, I hope this psalm has been easy to follow, encouraging to your heart today. It is a psalm that encourages us to consider the steadfast love of the Lord, especially when it's shown in God rescuing us from all kinds of troubles, much of which we bring on ourselves. And so my two closing applications are really just the two main emphases of the psalm. One, give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love to you, especially his love that has been shown in how he's rescued us time and time again from our own sinful choices, our own foolish decisions. Give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love to you. This is one of the great things to do when thoughts from our past come up. I don't know about you, but I have plenty of stupid things I have done in my life. And I also have plenty of sinful things I've done in my life. And quite often, the thoughts of those things, often inexplicably, come rushing to my mind. What should we do with those things? Here's just one thing. When those things plague you, remember how God has rescued you. Time and again in your life, from both your own sin and just your own stupidity. And then give thanks to the Lord all over again for his loyal love. That is one of the main emphases of this psalm. And then the other is, and let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let others know what God has done for you how God has rescued you from countless situations in your life, how God has rescued you from your sin, ultimately through his son, but also just how God has heard you cry from despair or how God has heard you 
in bouts of depression or moments of anxiety or even from the very gates of death and tell of his deeds with joy. I think we are too quiet about what God has done for us. Not only in saving us through the work of his son, but also in delivering us from our troubles time and time again. Who have you told lately of something great that God has done for you? Whether that be his saving you through his son or just one of the many occasions that have maybe come to mind today through reading through the psalm and just thinking, have I ever experienced anything like that before? Who do we tell? I think we are very quiet when it comes to these things. And yet you read the psalm, and from the beginning all the way through the psalm, what is the message? It's give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Or let us extol him in the congregation of the righteous. And, and let us proclaim his marvelous works in the hearing of the lost too. And these are the twin applications from this psalm. But I also don't want to leave the psalm without reflecting just a little bit on how this psalm, I think, specifically helps us appreciate the work of Jesus even more. It does that in a lot of ways. Maybe you've thought of some already. But I want to draw your attention to my favorite two lines of this psalm, which are verses 15 and 16, especially verse 16. <laughs> verse 15 says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. That's repeated a lot in the psalm. But in verse 16 it says, For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. I love those two lines of how God can shatter the doors of bronze and cut in two the bars of iron. That is one of the greatest pictures in the Bible of how God can set the prisoner free. And then I spend a lot of time in Paul's writings. And what I've learned over the years is that Paul constantly talks about slavery, imprisonment being chained, if you will. Both this happened to him literally, where he was imprisoned a lot, but Paul loves to talk about slavery and imprisonment as the picture of our former life without Jesus. Before Jesus, we were enslaved under sin. We were held captive by the law. We were imprisoned under the powers of this age, we belonged to the dominion of darkness. Those are just some of the things that Paul says like this. And Paul uses those pictures to help us see the glory of Christ and the cross. That God's final plan to set the prisoners free, to shatter the doors and 
break apart the iron bars was to free us through the cross of Christ. Christ died under the curse of the law. He died as one of us, and he came out on the other side of death victorious so that in him we could find freedom. And so when you think about things like this, like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I think he's thinking about these kinds of images. When he says in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps we could think of how songwriters sometimes use this image. And there's lots of songs like this, many that I love to listen to, but I'll just share from one stanza, which is maybe the most famous stanza about being imprisoned in a dungeon and then having God unlock the door. This is just from an old song. It says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. And then what does the chorus say on that one? And my chains fell off, and my heart was free, and I rose, and I went forth, and I followed thee. If that has happened to us, what should we do? Let us thank the Lord for his loyal love, and let's go out and tell someone what God has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unfailing love. Thank you for your goodness, which endures forever. And Lord, would you stir our hearts so that we will want to say so. I pray that you will help us to extol you in the congregation of the righteous, both through the things that we sing, but also as we share with one another your mighty deeds in our lives. And then, Lord, I pray as well that as the redeemed, you will help us to open our mouths and to tell those who still are in chains of what you can do for them too. Lord, I thank you for a great Thanksgiving week. I thank you for how you blessed us with fellowship, friendship, good food. Lord, we thank you for the table this morning, which reminds us of our greatest need, which you have met through Jesus, who laid down his life for us and was raised for our righteousness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.